You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast series. I have uh, Anthony St. Ledger. He's an assistant professor, Department of Ophthalmology uh, at University of Pittsburgh. So, uh, Anthony, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it looks like uh, you're working on the ocular microbiome, which sounds super interesting. I guess that's the uh, microbial attachment to our eyes, right? Correct, correct. Okay. Do um, do most people even know that we have a microbiome of the eye? So most people don't. I think whenever you talk about the microbiome, most people think about the intestine because there's been such a push on trying to normalize the intestinal microbiome to have the good bacteria be pretty prominent and maintain health and and, uh, sort of prevent um, infectious disease as well as prevent autoimmunity. But about uh, three years ago, we found using a mouse model of eye disease that there are actually bacteria that live underneath the eyelid. Um, on the eye, and um, they they do similar things to what the intestinal microbiome does in modulating susceptibility to infectious disease and possibly um, autoimmunity. Yeah, I wonder if um, I don't know if this has happened to you. For sometimes, sometimes I've I've seen like um, I guess they call them floaties, or you know, if the light is right, I feel like I'm seeing things maybe on the surface of my eye, but in my field of vision for a moment, I see things like floating by everyone's it happens every once in a while i don't know if that's uh, me seeing any of the microbes in my eye or what that is so that's so that's probably just um proteins inside your eye that are um floating in front of the retina that's what is what i would think uh, since the bacteria are so small it's probably pretty unlikely that you would see them actually across your field of vision oh okay okay so so in the eye how many distinct niches are there are there you know ones that are that always stay beneath the eyelid and ones that are on top of the eyelid and the center of the eye? Uh, so, so what we know around the eyelid um, is, is more is skin. So it's actually more like the skin microbiome. So there's a pretty consistent uh, diversity of bacteria that live on the skin. However, when you get past the eyelid and get underneath the eye, underneath the eyelid, the diversity kind of constricts. And we're just beginning to understand what controls that contraction of the of the microbial species, and it looks to be affected by your geographical location, so where you live, um, whether you wear contact lenses or not, um, your age, it, um, it it changes, you know, as you age, and whether you have any sort of ocular disease, like if you were to have dry eye symptoms, that appears to to affect the diversity of bacteria at the eye, but we're really not sure why why it changes from the skin to the eye. I think that's, that's, a, that's one of my major goals in the lab is to try to figure out 
what allows bacteria to stay underneath the eyelid and you know what factors allow it to thrive there and and, and what benefits um, those bacteria produce for the eye well i mean i guess the eye is you know we blink i don't know how many times a day but that that kind of mm -hmm. like windshield wipers or bathes our eye surface in in various fluids and you know do the bacteria feed off proteins or things like that, that are nutrients that are in that fluid or like what's some of the dynamic you figured out? So what we've seen is, and what's, what's sort of been conventional thought in, in the eye field is that the tears actually are, are very harsh on bacteria. They contain a lot of enzymes and um, factors that, that kill bacteria on contact. So your eye is actually very well protected against bacteria landing on the eye and infecting. And then as you you imagine tears wash across the eye, that also helps to wash away the bacteria. So the eye is actually a very inhospitable place for bacteria. And it's sort of illustrated that if you were to take a swab of your central cornea, so the middle of the eye, that routinely comes back devoid of any bacteria because the cornea is a very uh, not good place for bacteria. But as you go underneath the eyelid, you know, the flow of tears is a little less and you're less exposed to the environment. Um, it's a little, it looks to be a little more gentle. So the bacteria have a chance to adhere to the tissue there and, and, and grow and to survive, um, and almost thrive. It looks like they do, they, that something in the tears actually helps them to live on the eye. And we're trying to figure out what factor might be causing that. Well, if you're actively tearing or crying, is that very different from the normal, I guess, little micro squirts of tears that you know, are continuously coming out of, you know, the ducts in your eye? Yeah, so if, you, if, you're, if you're actually crying, uh, the makeup of those tears are slightly different than just the normal steady, steady, steady state tears. So, uh, you know, I've tried to make people in my lab cry with my terrible jokes, but we don't sort of see the same <laughs> effects. So dad joke tears are different from, you know, like tears of despair? Yeah, right, exactly. Interesting. Um, it, I don't know if you can profile this, but are the bacteria different that are right in front of or on top of the pupil area versus the iris area versus the sclera? So that, so we have only been able to find it underneath the eyelid. There really doesn't appear to be any sort of bacteria adhering to the eye in front of the pupil or in front of the iris. We've really only seen it um, underneath that eyelid. And I think that's where most of any adherent bacteria live. Um, and we've, as, you know, from, from our studies, we've only been able to find one type of bacteria that can colonize the eye. I'm sure there are others and I'm sure people are looking at it, but the only real um, bacteria that we've seen that's able to adhere to the eye and stay there long-term is part of the genus Carinibacterium. Um, and it's, it sort of grows um, in a filamentous pattern underneath the eyelid. So, so there's no bacteria on your... When, you, when your eyes are open, there's no bacteria sitting in the liquid that bathes your eyeball. They're just under so it the could, eyelid. It could be introduced there if you rub your eye or if it flies in there from the environment. It could it could be there, but you know, there's been extensive studies looking for um, bacterial adherence and bacterial DNA in the in the center part of the eye, and it it always comes back as negative unless you have some sort of really severe ocular infection. So maybe blinking is like the street sweeping that takes any materials that land on the eye surface and pulls them under the lid so that bacteria can work on them. 
Right, exactly. Uh, you know, that, that, that's certainly possible. And I think, um, yeah, as you, as you age, that, that, that definitely plays a role in how you blink and how often you blink. Um, because an interesting feature we found with our bacteria too is that we had to give it to animals very soon after birth because as they age, the eye is, becomes actually less hospitable. So you, you lose the ability to colonize the eye with bacteria as as these animals age so we're trying to figure out that dynamic too what's the optimal time to if you're going to give some good bacteria to to people or to animals when um you know during childhood or adolescence or adulthood is the best time to actually give them those bugs so what i mean the bacteria that live under our eyelids like what, what kind of metabolites do they make or you know what have you been able to glean about what they do uh so we We've done some basic characterizations, and that's sort of a goal of, of the lab right now, is to try to figure out what they what they actually do. And right now, we're not quite sure, but they do metabolize um, things in the tears um, that that they use as energy sources, and the immune system actually recognizes them, and that recognition actually boosts the protective um, ability of the eye. So basically, when the bacteria are there and the immune system recognizes it, that the eye is less susceptible to be infected with other more serious um, pathogens that cause blindness, like Pseudomonas aeruginosa can can uh, destroy the cornea very quickly, or Candida albicans can, can infect the cornea and, and cause a lot of disease. But what we see is when the bacteria are there, something they do produce that's recognized the immune, by the immune system um, helps protect the eye. So indirectly, something they produce protects the eye from infection. Um, people that wear contacts, I would guess that uh, you know produces a, a different microbiome. You know, have you studied that? What's different about people that wear contacts? Uh, yeah. So my lab has not studied it, but others have, and what they see is the makeup of the bacteria that of the ocular microbiome is totally different, and there's actually more pathogenic bacteria in those people that wear contact lenses. So it definitely shifts the the microbial landscape so that different bacteria are represented. And I think there's studies now trying to figure out um, how you can sort of normalize the bacteria so that you don't have such a dramatic effect. Yeah, I've heard that um, people that watch screens, you know, their blink rate slows down and that can cause uh, the, you know, the tears and all that in the eye to dry out because they're not blinking Mm -hmm. enough to lubricate the eye. Anything... uh, you heard about in that regard? Um, so, in regards to the microbiome, we haven't we haven't heard much, just because um, looking at the functional effects of the microbiome is so relatively new. Um, but we do see that whenever we induce sort of a, a dry eye phenotype in animals, that that the ability for bacteria to colonize is is also shifted. So, the effects of a dry eye do change how bacteria can live at the eye and, and, and what they're actually doing, um, whether they're beneficial or could they turn into sort of a pathogenic type of bacteria. I don't know if there'd be any effect, but people that wear glasses versus don't wear glasses, do you think that would affect their microbiome of the eye or is that too subtle to have any change? Uh, I, you know, I don't know about that. It's, it's possible. Um, I, I don't see how it can change too terribly much just because there's nothing really changed about the eye. But but I guess anything is possible with, you know, whenever you're affecting vision, you know, it could affect the microbial landscape. Yeah. yeah. Um, hmm. 
so what experiments are you doing right now that you think you're going to give you some good data? What do you feel like you're on the, uh, the edge of figuring out? So we're currently figuring, uh, doing experiments right now to see, you know, what these bacteria eat. And it looks like they, they eat something in tears that allows them to thrive. I think that that sort of gets us into a an idea of, of what factors allow good bacteria to stay and helps to keep bad bacteria out. Uh, we've also been moving towards uh, making our system more physiological. We're always trying to move towards helping humans. I think that's the goal of every scientist is to help humans. And so the, the original bacteria we have was isolated from mice and we we showed a lot of um, beneficial effects of this bacteria in mice, but we don't, we never really knew if, if this bacteria or a similar bacteria exists in humans. So we have a, a UPMC eye center here that um, it's basically our eye clinic and they have a, a humongous library of bacteria that's been stored over, uh, you know, decades of, of patients. And Regis Kowalski, the director of this, provided us with um, over 30 clinical isolates of bacteria. And we've been able to screen through those isolates and identify which human isolates can be colonizers of the eye and how similar they are to the mouse um, isolate we have. And interestingly, we found a handful that are very similar to the mouse isolate we have, suggesting that you know, the effects we see in mice also apply to humans. So now we can take those clinical isolates and possibly modify them to to um, become almost like probiotics of, um, to alleviate dry eye disease or, or other types of diseases of the ocular surface. If someone has contacts, you know, instead of just giving them, I don't know what they give, saline or some kind of solution, uh, if you had a probiotic part to it that, you know, if you knew what healthy eyes had and you added that into the drops in their eye, it might help. Right, yeah, exactly. And interesting about eye drops too is that um, what we find is the good bacteria actually metabolize those eye drops too. <laughs> so oh. um, there's something in the eye drop as well as in tears that, that helps to create sort of a, a foster a good environment of, of bacteria. Cataracts, what, uh, have you studied those or other, have other labs? And, you know, is, is a cataract, is there a biofilm component? Or, I mean, what's, you know, what's interesting about them? So in the, in the causes of cataracts, we, we really don't know if there's any sort of link. But I think you know, whenever you cut the eye open to, to alleviate cataracts, I think you're always concerned about whether you're introducing bacteria that should be staying on the outside of the eye, inside of the eye. So we know that, you know, the good bacteria, whenever it's on the exterior part of the eye is good. We don't know if what happens if you, you put a needle or cut the eye open and, and accidentally get some of those bacteria inside the eye, then what would happen? Um, we haven't done those experiments, but I think that's, that's at least relevant to human disease where you're having, you know, countless cataract surgeries a day um, and trying to, you know, mitigate any sort of bacterial infection. I don't know if mice ever have cataracts or they could be induced, but it might be interesting because maybe they have their own microbiome or something interesting about them, you know? Right, right. So usually we only see cataracts form after they, after they die. So once we, once we sacrifice them and, and perform experiments on them, they, they will get cataracts, but we never, um, they don't routinely happen in the live mice. Huh. Yeah. How hard is it going to be to figure out what the, uh, the bacteria are eating in tears and, you know, how would you figure out that dynamic? Uh, so I think the goal is to try to find, you know, a, a bigger surplus of tears. You know, we just need to be able to 
um, have enough of a supply, then we can um, split it up into into different. It's called fractionation, and you can you can figure out exactly you know what part of the tier is used to be is metabolized. Um, it just takes a little bit of time and and a bigger supply of tiers. So that's what we're trying to go after right now. So you're using what mouse tier, tiers? Uh, yeah. So we use yeah. It, we can either isolate mouse tiers from washing the eye, um, or we take their lacrimal gland. Uh, so it's the main tear producing gland that's just outside the eye as sort of a surrogate. So all of the factors that would be produced that come out in tears are also in the lacrimal gland. So we use that as a surrogate to sort of do some of our initial screening. Very interesting. Any other uh, projects or research that's going on that you're looking at, you know, eagerly waiting for it to be completed that would inform your own? Uh, I mean, so I think, I think another sort of unappreciated aspect of the eye is that it's the most densely innervated tissue of, of the body. So um, if you think about, you know, whenever you get a hair that lands on, on your eye, how disruptive it is and how painful it could be, that sort of illustrates how, how many, um, you know, sensory nerves are in the cornea. What we're seeing now in some of our infectious disease models is that um, things like viral infections actually cause those sensory nerves to retract. And that, that's a relatively, you know, significant issue in, in humans because if you lose the ability to blink, then you're more susceptible to, to dry eye, you're more susceptible to traumatic injury. And it's possible that, that some of these, you know, the increase in, in uh, dry eye symptoms that you see all the time that are primarily attributed to looking at a screen is, you know, could be that you're losing a lot of these sensory nerve endings in the cornea, presumably due to screen watching or other things that, that are causing um, some issues in the ocular surface. So that's what we're trying. That's another arm of our research is to try to see how the neuroimmune axis is functioning at the eye to, to preserve um, vision and just preserve quality of life. I know, again, if anyone's looking at, you know, I don't know what the, the tear composition is or what the microbial composition is for people with glaucoma or cataracts or after eye surgery, or I mean, there's, I guess, a lot of different um, things that can go on with the eye that can maybe right, inform yeah. you what happens normally. Pink eye, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so pink eye specifically um, is interesting because with conjunctivitis, I mean, I think we all know how how substantial the issue is with conjunctivitis. I mean, if anybody has any kids, um, you know, how, how life-altering it could be whenever you have a kid with pink eye, but you take them to the doctor and the doctor automatically prescribes antibiotics. And a recent study showed that 60% of pink eye cases have an antibiotic prescription. However, a large majority of pink eye is caused by a viral infection. So it's self-limiting and really doesn't have any treatment. So basically there's the, it, it basically contributes to this over-prescription of antibiotics. And we really don't know how those antibiotics are affecting the microbi microbiome and how they're affecting ocular health. And I'm not advocating for not using antibiotics, but I'm just saying that we might need a more judicious um, assessment of whether pink eye is truly caused by a bacteria or it's caused by, by a viral infection. So we can prescribe antibiotics a little more, um, I would say conservatively. Are there any fungi or yeasts or phages that have been observed in the eye? Uh, so we've seen, there's been infections with candida, albicans, and other sort of um, fungal species. Aspergillus is a fungal species that infects the eye. We really 
looking at the fungal, it's called a mycobiome, um, hasn't really been done at the eye. It's been done for the skin and other other tissues, but it hasn't reached the eye yet. Um, there is a there is a lab um, that has looked at um, the possible viral um, component of the microbiome, and what they see is it's relatively conserved across across humans. It's called torquetenovirus, and it's linked to some some cancers. and And um, I think we're now just trying to figure out you know why it, why it can be propagated in the eye and why it stays there long term. But I think that sort of illustrates that, yes, there are viruses that are routinely found at the eye as well as um, fungi. We just need to actually look. I think we just haven't looked yet because our focus has been on bacteria for the time being. Also, what about the uh, the lower eyelid versus the upper one? It doesn't seem like the lower one really moves. The upper one moves a lot. Is, are the bacteria what? different there? Um, I don't know if the robust studies have been done on, on whether the upper eyelid is is dramatically different from the lower eyelid um from what it's, I know, like, looked at, it's like northern south korea there's like there's no man's land with the yeah right eyeball yeah, in zone. yeah i think it probably ends up normalizing at some point because if you think about when you fall asleep and your eyes are closed for a long period of time that the bacteria probably eventually sort of get distributed throughout the throughout the tissue yeah i just wonder if they have to be different because one's moving a lot one's not you know Right. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. So um, what's some of the near-term goals you have for your own research? So I think some of our near-term goals is to start um, sort of disseminating what we've been finding and and the uniqueness of the bacteria and the uniqueness of the immune response at the the surface of the eye. We've been looking at, at the makeup of the immune system at the eye of humans, and we've been finding some interesting dynamics um, whenever there's, you know, different types of infections like viral infections or bacterial infections, how, how dynamic the immune response is at the, in the human eye. Um, we've also been, you know, focusing on that, the bacteria themselves, that um, can, we, can we modify these bacteria to act as drug delivery vehicles? Can we uh, modify them to produce factors that, that possibly act as a lubricant for the eye to, to better um, treat dry eye disease and things like that. So we're trying to do some innovative um, thinking that we can engineer these bacteria to be, you know, definite probiotics instead of just regular bacteria. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Anthony, any, uh, any other questions that you wanted me to ask? And if not, where, where can people find out more about your lab and your work? Uh, so we have a website at, um, I, I don't really have it right now. I can I can send that to you later. But we have a website sure. on the on uh, the UPMC Eye Center website um, that describes sort of our lab interests. Um, you know what sort of other projects we have, and you know we're always hiring. So any scientists of any level is always we're always interested in getting some great talent uh, working on our stuff. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Perfect. I have, I'm glad to, to be here, and I appreciate you asking me to be on the show. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now. 
and the companies that are using these technologies for the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.